0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 1st of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Extremely limited relief for the people of Gaza. The theory and practice of the purpose-built capital city. And when is it too late to rectify a miscarriage of justice? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Alex von Tunzelman and Robin Lustig will discuss the day's big stories, and we'll hear from the author Nathan Thrall about his inadvertently timely new book, Depicting Life on the Occupied West Bank. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Alex von Tunzelman, the historian, author and screenwriter, and will be joined shortly by Robin Lustig, the journalist and broadcaster. Um, Alex, while you are here, first of all, hello. Hello. Uh, and, and also, your what, your latest book is sort of back in the news again because people have been tearing down statues and other people are extremely unhappy about it.
1: Yes, well, this is a statue that's actually been torn down for a little while, um, the Robert E. Lee statue. and from Charlottesville. It's very, now being melted as well as torn. That right? was the exciting thing that happened. <laughs> exactly. They, they melted it down, and some very sort of extraordinary pictures were in all the papers of Robert E. Lee's face was sort of being melted and blowtorched a bit. So it looked a bit like, if you remember the very famous scene at the end of Terminator, mm. and indeed again, Terminator 2. Um, sort of melted in the steel back to its original metallic form.
0: I mean, tempting to suggest it couldn't have happened to a
1: nicer fellow. Well, (laughs) I mean, I didn't weep salt tears myself. (coughs) Um, But it is kind of an extraordinary... um, perhaps it's an end, uh, perhaps it isn't, to to a very long story and kind of, you know, the story of um, Confederate statues in the US, which continue to be enormously controversial. I mean, one of the reasons that getting rid of this statue has been so delayed is because there were so many legal challenges to getting rid of it, so many defenders of it. You know, this has gone through a very, very lengthy process. Now, if we
0: do happen to have listeners who are wondering what to get for Christmas for that person in their life who has a keen interest in idolatry, and iconoclasm, (laughs) do you by any chance have a book you would be able to recommend?
1: I do. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) My book, Fallen Idols, 12 Statues That Made History, uh, does actually have a whole chapter on the aforementioned Robert E. Lee. Um, the statue I look at is one that went a few years ago, which is, well, was in New Orleans, uh, is no is no longer presiding over New Orleans. Um, but, you know, there have been, I think Lee was the most memorialised mm. Confederate figure. Um, he was always the one that could be presented to uh, a sort of post-war audience as embodying what the South saw as its values of sort of chivalry and nobleness and all this, as opposed to slavery.
0: Was there actually anything to that other than the fact that he had a nice beard and looked quite dashing in his <laughs> grey frock coat
1: well when they put the statue up in New Orleans there was a very um, a sort of very florid speech that they tried to give it was it was two hours long written by you know sort of delivered about this statue going on about his uh, medieval British two hours yes you, medieval you, British you, you ancestry you could, and
0: you could recite the collected works of Shelby Foote in that time
1: I mean really and, and it would be better if you did and it sort of went on and on about you know how noble and chivalrous he was he had this lineage going back to medieval England and all this. But on the day it happened, they couldn't actually do it because um, almost as if God himself had an opinion, the heavens opened with the most tumultuous downpour possible and everybody for the uh, ceremony scattered. Uh, so I'm afraid the, the very long speech was cut short, which is very sad for everyone.
0: Nobody ever takes the hint, do they? Uh, we will have more from you shortly, Alex. But now, what with one thing and another, spare a thought for the author on book tour in the United States, promoting a novelistic nonfiction which attempts to offer a nuanced depiction of life in the occupied Palestinian territories. The Jerusalem-based American author Nathan Thrall is presently doing exactly that with A Day in the Life of Ava abed salama a richly reported narrative of a ghastly tragedy made even worse by its particular circumstances thrall has found his events cancelled and himself denounced personally by arkansas governor and nitwit sarah huckabee sanders i spoke to nathan earlier and i asked him how he had first heard of his book's protagonist
2: i tell the story in the book of a man named Abed Salama who lives very close to me. I live in Jerusalem and he he lives in a community that is surrounded by a 26 foot tall concrete wall on three sides. On the fourth side, there's another wall running through a segregated road, Route 4370, famously known as the Apartheid Road. So this is an enclosed walled ghetto that the Abd Salama and other characters in the book live in. And this is just two miles away from my home. I would pass this w- walled ghetto on a daily or weekly basis and hardly pay it any mind. And that changed after a terrible tragedy befell this community uh, of people with whom I share a city. Abed Salama took his five-year-old son, Milad, to go buy treats for a kindergarten class trip. And the following morning, his son, Milad, got on a bus with about 50 other kindergartners. And because the uh, students on this bus had different kinds of permits. Some had green ID cards that allowed them to enter only other parts of the West Bank and not to enter the occupied parts of of Jerusalem. The others had blue ID cards that did allow them to move into uh, Jerusalem and and the rest and beyond. So because of that, these students were unable to go to a nearby play area just on the other side of the wall that encircled their community, a play area in, for example, the community of Pisgat Ze'ev, an Israeli settlement just on the other side of the wall. And so instead, the bus took a, the winding path along the outside of this wall toward a distant play area near Ramallah, And after they passed through a checkpoint, they were struck by a giant lorry, a lorry that was on its way to a settlement quarry uh, and was transporting stones from this quarry in the West Bank, where Israel is extracting natural resources and using them to pave Israeli roads. This lorry slammed into the school bus, the bus flipped over and caught fire and six children and one teacher died. And who was left to try and rescue these children on this bus were the Palestinian bystanders on this street. This road that they were on is fully administered by Israel. It's under full Israeli control. Israeli police give out traffic tickets on this road. But because it's on the other side of this wall, it is an area of utter neglect. Israel ignores it. The Palestinian Authority isn't allowed to administer it. And so these innocent Palestinian bystanders who were happened upon this burning bus, they started to take soot-covered children and put them in the back of their cars. And again, if you happen to be a driver of a car who's taking a kindergartner off to a hospital, if you had a blue ID that allows you to enter Jerusalem, you would take that child to a superior Jerusalem hospital that was nearby. If you had a green ID, you would go in the other direction toward a Ramallah hospital, or some of them even went to Nablus. And I tell how Abed and other parents raced to the scene of this crash and discovered that all of the children were gone. They'd been evacuated. And the children had been evacuated long before the first Israeli fire truck had arrived. And I tell the story of how Abed searches for his son for more than 36 hours just to find his son. He himself has a green ID, is unable to look for his child in Jerusalem hospitals. He goes to a Ramallah hospital. He asks a relative who has a blue ID to go look for his son. And I tell the story of of not just Abed, but of other people, Palestinians and Jews, whose lives intersected in this uh, terrible tragedy. And through the story of this accident, I tell the bigger story of all of Israel-Palestine.
0: The book, I guess, has acquired an amount of inadvertent uh, prescience based on what is occurring now. And as you said before, you are very careful to humanise the Israeli characters that appear in the book as well, suggesting that everybody in Israel and Palestine is somehow trapped by this system that has been erected over the decades. Is what we're seeing now, do you think, well, a necessarily inevitable consequence of that?
2: You know, one of the themes of the book is the deep dehumanization that both of these peoples, Jews and Palestinians, uh, feel they have been subjected to. And that is at the root of the utter brutality that we have seen in the last several weeks
0: That was Nathan Thrall speaking to me earlier. A Day in the Life of Abed Salama is available now. I am joined now by Robin Lustig and Alex von Tunzelman. It's all right, we can tidy that up later. Um, And we will be starting uh, in Gaza, where there has been, in the grim context of recent weeks, a small morsel of relative good news. The Rafah crossing on Gaza's border with Egypt has been opened sufficiently to permit the exit of ambulances carrying 88 Palestinians seriously injured by Israel. Israel's recent bombardments and perhaps 500 of the several thousand dual nationals believed to be in Gaza presently. Um, Alex, first of all, is is this something at least?
1: I mean, it is something, isn't it? But it's very, very, very small numbers. As you say, I think uh, last time I Checked in on the numbers, about 320 people across, I think, as you say, about 500 are expected to go across today. Um, And those are, yes, foreign nationals and dual nationals, as you say, um, uh, you know, various kind of passport holders. And there were some rather emotional pictures, certainly in the New York Times and other places of them sort of holding up their passports and rather desperately kind of trying to get through the very damaged terminal at Rafah, which is, you know, kind of uh, Hmm. not in a brilliant state. Um, And obviously it's good news for them. But, you know, there are well over 2 million people in Gaza, so this is a very, very small number of people being able to access safe territory.
0: Uh, And part of the reason, Robin, that these numbers are so small and are probably likely to remain small, at least uh, for people who do not have two passports, is that Egypt is massively unenthused about the prospect of Palestinians arriving en masse in Egypt. It is often forgotten that two countries have been blockading Gaza all these years.
3: Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, Egypt has two reasons why it doesn't want a flood of refugees crossing its border. First of all, it doesn't want to be responsible for huge numbers of people whom it will have to feed, provide medical attention for, and the second reason is that they know that the history of the Palestinians is a history of refugeedom, and they do not wish to be seen to be party to any enforced exodus of Palestinians from Gaza. Uh, If one looks back at the history, uh, the reason the Palestinians are crammed into Gaza is that they fled from elsewhere, Uh, that's the reason why there are refugee camps in gaza even though they look more like shanty towns than what most people would assume uh, refugee camps look for so they look like so the egyptians don't want to be party to anything which could be seen as an israeli forced expulsion of people from gaza into egypt
0: the more cynical uh, view as well uh, alex and possibly the more self-preserving one from egypt's point of view is that egypt is also not at all a fan of hamas which they regard not unreasonably as an adjunct of the muslim brotherhood
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think most countries would be pretty nervous about importing large numbers of people who might have all sorts of opinions or backgrounds. Mm. I mean, you know, one of the... um, If you were doing this in an orderly fashion, you would probably have a screening programme. But it's quite hard at this point to be doing anything in an orderly fashion. So that's one of the difficulties that is being faced. I mean, is there... I mean,
0: Robin, it, it does seem inevitably fatuous to try and be remotely optimistic about the situation at present but is there perhaps some kind of opportunity here for other countries which are actually willing and able to help it is obviously as we have seen extremely difficult to get aid into Gaza directly Uh, but it is not impossible that some countries especially those which have made uh, a virtue over the last decades of being terrifically concerned about the Palestinians could actually help them once they're in Egypt It's possible, and it's, uh, I
3: think, more than likely that they will at least be able to help financially and perhaps even logistically as well. Um, I mean, if we are looking for glimmers of hope, and I think that's pretty much all we can do at the moment, then where I find a glimmer of hope is that uh, the kind of thing that we've seen happening today... Is an indication that there are very intense behind-the-scenes negotiations going on. Diplomacy is being conducted. Now, at the moment, yes, it's a handful of people who have crossed from Gaza into Egypt, but if those contacts continue, then there is the hope, at least a slim hope, that the talks could develop into something more. And when people are talking, and when I say people, I mean Egypt, the United States, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the people who are in the immediate area and who do have influence on the main players in this awful conflict, then there is a chance that some of the worst of what we've been happening may not carry on for too much longer.
0: I mean, Alex, what we don't have yet is a completely clear idea of how Israel sees this panning out, what their end game, what their war aims, their conditions of victory are. Do you think that is because they are attempting to keep Hamas and perhaps the rest of the world guessing? Or do you think perhaps Israel has not entirely figured that out itself?
1: I'm afraid I think largely the latter. Um, I think the, you know, kind of moving immediately to a war footing straight after the appalling events of the 7th of October was a sort of quite emotional reaction. You know, Netanyahu was obviously not prepared for this. This was not part of his strategy. And it was a terrible failure on the part of Israeli intelligence and defence that that happened and that continued for as long as it did. You know, I mean, some of the survivors were saying they were just waiting for where's the IDF? They're waiting for defence to show up. And I think there was therefore this very strong reaction, you know, from Netanyahu to go to a kind of total war without actually a very clear strategic objective. Because, yes, of course, you can say that you want to destroy Hamas. But we all know from situations like Iraq and Afghanistan not particularly long ago that actually it's extremely hard <coughs> to remove a terrorist group, especially from a built up area with a aerial bombing campaign. I mean, that is especially a huge cost of civilian life. Um, very, very hard to root them out in that way. If you want to reduce the military capacity of Hamas to attack Israel, again, that'd be a legitimate goal potentially, but is far more targeted. But, you know, it's a very, very complicated, difficult operation. And it's unclear to me, uh, from everything that's been said, what success would look like. And now, of course, you have Netanyahu talking in rather biblical terms, actually literally biblical terms. Mm. Um, And it starts to look like, um, just a campaign of vengeance, and I think that is very difficult because I do think international support, which I think was very high initially after, you know, the appalling Hamas attacks, war is now shifting rather, and I think you know the calls for a ceasefire are clearly um, increasing, and that's partly because people simply want to take a breath and say, well, okay, but what actually are you trying to achieve here? This well, is, at
3: least, I think uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who has to emerge from this. ...being able to say Hamas are no longer in control of the Gaza Strip. Because Hamas, as well as being a a, a paramilitary terrorist group, are also the government of Gaza. And uh, that's been one of the problems throughout. So Netanyahu cannot stop this campaign with Hamas still in place as the effective authority in Gaza... That means they're going to have to find somebody else to become the effective authority, probably some kind of international
0: group of nations. And that's going to be very difficult indeed to agree to. Well, there is more on this subject in today's edition of the Foreign Desk Explainer, which should be live now or now about. And you can listen to that straight after you have finished listening to this. But let's move along. to the concept of the designated purpose-built capital city. A seamless pivot there. Uh, This gets, in the main, a bad press, and largely deservedly. One thinks of Brasilia, Islamabad, Canberra, Washington, D.C., and Napierdor, antiseptic company towns often detached from the country they govern politically and spiritually, as well as geographically. Undaunted, Indonesia is ploughing ahead with its contribution to the genre. President Yoko Widodo has broken ground on what will become the international airport of Nusantura, a new capital to be situated on Borneo, scheduled for completion circa 2045. Um, Alex, first of all, are we broadly sympathetic to Indonesia's quandary here? Their current capital, Jakarta, is crowded, it is chaotic, it is falling to bits, and it is literally sinking into the ocean.
1: It is, yes, which... Obviously, one can understand that's a problem and that solving that is going to be also extremely expensive and difficult. Um, You know, it's very hard. But the problem is, what you don't want to do, as environmentalists have been saying in response to this, is simply repeat all the mistakes that have made Jakarta what it is. So, you know, I think what's very worrying about this is that there really don't seem to have been reports on the environmental impact of building this new city on Borneo, which is an incredibly precious and fragile Mm -hmm. environment. with you know extraordinary unique biodiversity, um and plonking a massive capital city there a thousand miles from Jakarta from the current capital city, including of course, a massive international airport, um is is very, very destructive. So while one can probably appreciate that yes, something must be done, is this the thing that must be done is kind of a reasonable question.
0: Uh, Robin, Indonesia inevitably protesting that their new capital will be modern, it will be green, it will be sustainable, it will be walkable, it will be all the good things. And in fairness, the argument in favour of artificial capitals, and I lived in one of the above mentioned for quite a stretch of my childhood, Canberra, it is all of those things. It is clean and green and sustainable and walkable and pleasant and all of that stuff. So if if it is all of those things, is there a problem if they put it on Borneo as opposed to a bunch of sheep paddock in the middle of New South Wales? Well,
3: there are so many problems involved in building an entire new city. Um, Yes, of course, new cities are modern and at least in their early years, they are clean and functional. Um, People tend to be reluctant to live in them because there tend to be few jobs other than government jobs Uh, I'm thinking of Abuja for example in Nigeria which is now a genuine city but certainly in the early years was not Brasilia arguably is now a successful city it can be done i think the problem for the indonesians is that in the current climate uh, and i put the word in inverted commas with so much attention quite rightly being focused on the fate of the environment uh the problems are even greater than they were 30 or 40 years ago putting it on borneo adds to the problems you just have to say orangutans to people and they put up, uh, you know, throw up their hands in horror. Uh, as Alex says, it looks as if not sufficient environmental impact studies have been done. I suspect the Indonesians are right to take the view that they do need to build a city somewhere. They seem to be going about it the wrong way.
0: I mean, are the Indonesians also, Alex, entitled to tell everybody else to back off They're being a bit patronising, this is actually our country and we do kind of know what we're doing with it at this point?
1: I mean, they wouldn't be the first to (laughs) adopt that point of view. I mean, you know, and ultimately, of course, um, nobody can stop them. I mean, if, if this is what the government wants to do and the government's been elected and this is what happens, then yes, they will go ahead and do it. So, But on the other hand, I think people will express opinions about it, for sure, internationally. And even if, I mean, I certainly, for instance, have no power to stop them, but it looks to me from what I read on it that this is very much, as Robin said, you know, it's not that moving the capital is necessarily a bad idea, but moving it to there would appear to be environmentally disastrous. And I don't think they can shut down all international criticism of that because there's likely to be a lot.
0: I mean, just to go back to the the political reality of this, Robin, the idea of the purpose-built capital where you, you park your government uh, somewhere in the middle of nowhere so it doesn't pester everybody else is there something to be said for it? It is often said that, you know, if you were serious about, for example, levelling up this country, you would remove the national government from London and put it somewhere else. Nobody in this country's really talked in terms of building a brand new capital for that. But is, is there something to the idea or do you have that problem that then, and this certainly is said in Australia a lot, that you end up with this remote cloistered class of federal politicians who don't really know what's going on elsewhere? Uh, I mean, I am a city lover,
3: I've I've usually lived in cities and I'm very fond of what cities are, but I think at their best they are organic, Mm. they they develop of their own volition over a period of centuries. Uh, My first posting as a foreign correspondent was to Madrid, the capital of Spain, which was in its time an artificial city, or at least an artificial capital. Bang centre in the middle of the country, no river running through it. I think it's one of the only capitals in the world that doesn't have a river running through it. Um, And it's an absolutely wonderful city now. But I'm sure at some time in the past, people said, what on earth are you doing making Madrid
0: the capital of the country? It's got nothing going for it. I mean, this is true, and, and certainly Canberra, I think, has, to which I'm still a regular visitor, has outgrown most of the jokes about being Australia's biggest above-ground graveyard. Um, but, <laughs> Alex, do you have a favourite purpose-built capital or at least an argument in favour of them?
1: Well, I, I, I do, actually. I mean, I like Washington, D.C. that you mentioned. I think, again, that has, you know... You need to pick the time of year to visit, though. You do. I mean, the weather is... <laughs> but that, of course, was very deliberate, wasn't it, to minimise the function of government by making it basically intolerable to you that most this, this, of the this time. Was,
0: this was the city that John F. Kennedy said combined southern efficiency with northern China.
1: Yes, yes. I'm afraid all too much. Yes. I mean, but I I do think I mean, I absolutely agree that I think in time, these cities actually do develop their own life and culture and so on, Um, have slightly yet to see that coming in say Milton Keynes. But I do think some of these places do actually develop and and in time, it probably will there as well. Um, And, you know, I think certainly places like Islamabad, which used to have a really bad reputation are increasingly thought of as quite interesting, actually, by Pakistanis, you know, so so in time it can work. And I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm not opposed actually to the idea of building a new city at all. And actually, I think in Britain, it would be a very good idea to move the government to somewhere in the north. can build Manchester. a new railway line in Britain. <laughs> know, yeah. Let alone a new city. No, I mean, they're not going to get on with a new city. No. But if they could only plonk it in Birmingham or Manchester, then the government might have a different perspective.
0: Well, to something else entirely and in countries where indoor smoking has been substantially abolished, it seems incredible that it was ever permitted. And it was not only in clubs, but restaurants, cinemas and on public transport. Might we come to feel the same way about the consumption of meat? Boffins at Durham University not only believe so, but wish to hustle us in that direction by applying tobacco-style health warnings to the packaging of meat products. Although the health in this instance is not merely Ours, but that of the planet. In order to comply with net zero goals, for example, the UK needs to eat 50% less meat by 2050. Um, Robin, first of all, a detail that leapt out and delighted me, leapt out at and delighted me, was about the, the principal lead author of this study. Do we think? that from here on, all crusading policy studies should be written by someone actually called Jack Hughes. I think it should be an absolute prerequisite of anybody writing any
3: kind of official report that uh, that should be the name. I was persuaded of the uh, advisability of this kind of policy when I visited the Amazon region of Brazil and saw the vast swathes of rainforest that had been cut down to create space for the growing of soy, and the soy was being grown to feed to cattle, and the cattle were being bred to make burgers, and I saw exactly what that chain looked like. I'm not a great meat eater, I'm not a vegetarian on principle, but I don't eat a great deal of meat, and one of the reasons is that I know it is extremely bad for the planet.
0: Um... Alex, would you be dissuaded any further than you may already be from eating meat by warnings of this sort?
1: Um, I don't... I think... I mean, similarly to Robin, I'm afraid I'm not a huge meat eater anyway. Um, I don't eat red meat for medical reasons, and I don't... In, and my husband's a vegetarian, so we have a vegetarian household, basically, so I only really have the odd chicken curry when I go out, basically. So I'm pretty low impact. Um, I probably am already reduced to the level that they'd be reasonably happy with. Um But I do... I mean, I've certainly gone through... I've been vegetarian when I was much younger and all of this. And and I think very much from an environmental point of view, very much from the point of view of the planet and so on. And and certainly it seems to me that that's on the increase anyway. So I think if they put labels like this on, I mean, I'm sure there would be some, you know, kicking and screaming from some people, but I think it would probably have quite a lot of support, actually, among younger generations. Um, And I think it is the way things are going. I do think things are moving in that direction. People are actually reducing the amount of meat they eat, partly for climate reasons and partly for cost of living reasons.
0: I mean, there would be kicking and screaming, Alex. You're right. This would be a monumentally tedious culture war bun fight, um, which is almost a good reason for having it. Um, <laughs> but but, Robin, I, I do actually wonder, as I was getting at in the in the introduction, and I speak as a meat eater, I nevertheless wonder about this, if there will come a point at which we do look back on the kind of uh, agriculture you were agriculture you were describing and think what the hell we were we doing because there will i'm sure come a point at which uh meat substitutes become more or less indistinguishable from actual meat um that they become possibly even cheaper than actual meat at which point there's not really a case for continuing to eat it, is there? Well, that's exactly
3: right. Also, I do think that the evidence suggests that public health campaigns of the kind that's now being discussed do have an effect, and the opposition to them actually dwindles quite quickly. I mean, you were talking about smoking in public places. Mm. Um, I, I can remember when people suggested that the whole idea of the the British pub would be completely impossible to countenance if people weren't allowed to smoke in pubs. Well, the pubs have survived um, seat belts in cars was another one. Crash helmets on motorcycles is another one. I mean, there are all kinds of public health campaigns in years gone by, which at the time seemed to be the most intolerable intrusion <laughs> by government into personal behaviour, which now are absolutely accepted as part of everyday
0: life. Uh, just a final quick thought on this one, Alex, which I thought was interesting. When they looked at which warnings were most effective uh, in persuading people not to eat meat, uh, it wasn't necessarily in environmental risks uh, and it wasn't even necessarily personal health risks it was the specific warning that eating meat can prompt pandemics
1: yes i mean it's kind of interesting that i mean (laughs) you know because i am slightly concerned that that revives the whole lab leak theory and all of this in people's minds um but i think i mean my feeling is that that might be sort of right now when we're still in the aftermath Mm. of the pandemic, that that's a sort of touchy point. But I think climate probably has a bit more of an enduring message. Um, But I mean, who knows? I haven't done the research. (laughs)
0: Well, finally, to Massachusetts, where efforts are afoot to secure pardons for all locals accused of witchcraft in the late 17th century. This wretched misfortune befell hundreds of women in the American colonies of the period, many of whom paid with their lives. Boston hanged five women convicted of witchcraft between 1648 and 1688. Similar restitution has been made elsewhere. Earlier this year, Connecticut Senate voted to pardon 12 convicted witches of around the same time. 11 of whom had been executed. Similar processes have posthumously exonerated those convicted and or executed in America's most infamous witch trials held in Salem, Massachusetts in the 1690s. Alex, counterpoint, what if they were witches, though? <laughs> Good point. I mean, you can't tell
1: now, can you? I mean, you can't have a proper trial. I mean, you know, this is the sort of thing that... Uh, I kind of feel... I mean, I'm sure it's a really wonderful use of legislative time, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, you sort of think, well, it keeps them off the streets, doesn't it? I mean, if politicians are going to go and vote on this, I suppose at least they're not doing anything incredibly destructive and terrible <laughs> or anything else. But but speaking with
0: your actual historian's hat on, I'm now trying to wonder what a historian's hat looks I like. I think
1: it's a tricorn.
0: Yeah, I, I would have was imagining yeah. a tricorn, something not like... Not well long and pointy, that's you, pretty you, sure. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, Big well, D on the front, yes. Well, yeah,
0: it, indeed. Um, but is this, with your historian's hat on, Alex, an actually worthwhile endeavour? Does it at least prompt discussion of olden times? Do we learn anything from it, etc.?
1: I mean, it's quite interesting from that point of view. It's so long ago. I mean, I think there are more kind of substantial campaigns to do things like, say, pardon gay men who were prosecuted uh, in the last century for, you know, sort of homosexuality. Some of whom are still alive. And that's why it's kind of a bit more valid, because actually it makes a difference to their lives. And I think it can make a difference also to people's descendants or relatives or anything like that. But I think when you're going back to kind of the 17th century, this is a little bit of a sort of daft exercise quite honestly I think
3: it has one value though which is it reminds us or at least forces us to focus on if we have this debate uh the dangers of mass hysteria Mm. and mass hysteria is now still again a phenomenon of I think substantial concern
0: um I mean, it's, it's, it's arguably because of the online realm, in fact, a resurgent phenomenon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think that if we are reminded
3: what can be the effect of mass hysteria, uh, as was the case during the witchcraft trials in, in, in Massachusetts and elsewhere, then that's quite a useful lesson to learn. I, I find it extraordinary that the, in the year, what year are we, 1823? No, 19, no, 2023, we're actually having this discussion. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm trying to think of what the argument against it would be, and I can't come up with one. Uh, but yes, let, let's talk about it, let's reflect on the dangers of mass hysteria and learn lessons from that.
0: Is, is there something to that, Alex? Do, do we see uh, in the witch trials of the, the 1600s, the 17th century, anything of the censorious manias that are current, currently grip us?
1: We probably do. And I think also another useful point, which because I think Robin made rather a good argument for doing it there, actually. <laughs> the other point that might be quite useful is reflecting on the fact that actually social opinions and legislative opinions change quite a lot over history that you know actually things are not permanent and do not stay the same and uh, and uh governments can and, and governing bodies and legal authorities can all make incredible misjudgments as well as you know individuals so and societies so i mean i think in a way there are actually some quite useful lessons in that potentially if that's what they're focusing on, then actually perhaps that does a little bit of good.
0: Where does it end though, Robert? I mean, I don't think, for example, thinking of the criminal riffraff from which I am myself descended, that there was much doubt about their guilt, probably. I don't know how fair a trial uh, your 18th century London shoplifter got at the time, but uh, am I owed any sort of apology for the somewhat heavy-handed sentences passed upon my, my forebears? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 th- I think history is littered with with things
3: for which we should uh, look back and hang our heads in shame. I mean, if if humanity has anything going for it at all, it's that it learns from its mistakes. Um, I'm not convinced at the moment that it does, but it should. And so, yes, I mean, one of the purposes of history is to look back, examine what was done and why it was done, and seek to do better next time. Yeah, your ancestors wrote them an apology. Um, I apologise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't. I wasn't holding you personally responsible, I'm happy Robin. For you but, to do so. but 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 thank you. And and on that conciliatory note, Robin Lustig and Alex von Tunzelman, thank you both for joining us. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. It was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.